What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host. You can follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. You can also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And on Instagram, get lots of great pictures there. Check me out there, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Well, right now, I have another guest from across the ocean. I'm going to merge her in. Good morning, uh, Mina. We're on the air. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good morning, Joy. I was just letting you know. I I am stuck in the house well because of COVID though. You know, COVID is like the big drama right now. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. Everywhere in the world it's um it's 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 a nightmare. Um so how are you doing in London yeah. with that? How are you handling? What's going on over there for you? You know what? Um they're just easing the lockdown rules at the moment and it's been quite terrifying because there's so much happening on a daily basis. There's a lot of violence, a lot of, um, you know, public, bad public behavior. Um, and so I think there's been like a buildup of aggression and frustration during the lockdown. And it's, it feels as though it's all coming out now. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, it's concerning. Yeah. Do you um, have to still wear masks? Do you have to wear masks? Uh, no, they so they they never enforce that here, and I'd say that most people in London aren't wearing masks unless they're uh, commuting. In which actually you have to wear a mask if you're hopping on a bus or a train, um, okay. but otherwise, not as I don't think people wear masks as much as um, you do over in in the U.S. From what I've yeah. seen on the news and stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, we have to wear masks um like everywhere now in my state. Um, they want everybody to wear masks going to the store, supermarket, even on the beach. They want you to wear a mask. Um, they have open really? beaches. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I mean, that's a good thing because the scientists 
seem to be saying that that really does prevent um, the spread. So I think they'll, right. they'll probably have to implement that here as well eventually. It's weird, though, because you're walking down the street, I mean, and you see people with these masks, and the first time it happened, it was really uncomfortable, you know. Um, it, it took away – you don't realize how much the face is important to communication. Um, Absolutely. Even yeah. without saying a it, word, you know. The face is so important. Yes. You need to see that face. <laughs> That's true. Um, you know, I had a bit of a of – a, preview into having masks around because I did a, I was a lecturer, a visiting lecturer in Hong Kong in 2016. Um, and, you know, they've been wearing masks out there. Well, at least they were then, like I'd say half of Hong Kong's population wore masks already then. And mm -hmm. I remember finding it so dystopian because this was because of climate change and pollution rather right. than a virus. But um, you know, eventually I was there for a few months and I, I, I got accustomed to it. So I think I, it's not as jarring for me now because I've had that experience in, in Hong Kong. Um, but it, I, I remember thinking that then, that this is crazy. Everybody's walking around with masks. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let me, let me tell the audience that, um, you know, I have this book, well, on my Kindle, and um, sensual knowledge, where did you come up with this title? What, what is it? Sensuous, I'm sorry, sensuous knowledge. <laughs> Where did you come up with this uh, title um, in your mind? Where did that come from? It came to me really suddenly, um, almost like a, 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 a flash of lightning or an epiphany or just a, a phrase that seemed to have a deeper meaning. Um, I was actually in um, the NASA research camp in, in San Jose, Silicon Valley, um, and I was I was having a swim, and while swimming, this this phrase popped into my mind, and then I couldn't quite let go of it. Um, and I think that it had to do with the environment in which I was, which was the very opposite of sensuous knowledge. I mean, it was a great gathering of people who are into ideas and you know problem solving, but it was all done in this very um, technocratic. Um, you know, it was predominantly very privileged men and white people um, who were there. And I think there was such a lack of um, soulfulness and embodiment and these kinds of uh, thinking in, in the conversations that we were having there that maybe uh, that was what brought the idea of sensuous knowledge to my mind because um, sensuousness in contrast to um, sensuality is sensuality is about the senses so it's about bodily pleasures to do with touch and smell and taste etc sensuousness is um is the integration of the mind the body and the spirit you could say so when 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 something is sensuous it sort of it evokes all of your being not only your senses but also your mind um and so it it was the feeling that i I longed for in this setting. And then I, I also realized, um, particularly during that event, but, um, you know, this is something that I've been engaging with for a long time. Um, and I, but I, I think that a lot of the direction that the world is moving toward um, is being shaped by Silicon Valley. And, and we, we don't really think about that enough, but the values that are shaping modern Western societies and increasingly pockets of societies in the global south um, are really shaped by this, this Silicon Valleyist discourse, 
which has its positives, but um, certainly it's, it is also part of the problem and the overall the thinking that is, yeah, yeah. Well, you talk about that in your book that, you know, we have all this technology, but we're still not able to solve some of the basic human problems that are going on. Let's start talking about what does Agban Inu and Agban Ori mean um, to the audience. Explain that those phrases to the audience and what that means, what they mean. Sure. Um, thank you so much for that for that question and for engaging with, with that particular part of my book. So um, Agban Inu and Agban Ori, um, these are concepts, these are Yoruba concepts that form part of the whole, which is Ogbon, which means knowledge. Um, and so the, the, the ancient philosophies and myths go that um, when, when God created the earth, he gave the people, or he or she, because the Yoruba God is, is gender neutral, um, so let's say they gave the people Ogbon, which is knowledge. But mm-hmm. God knew that people had to have um, both a kind of inner knowledge um, as well as outer knowledge. So you could compare yeah. this to emotional and intellectual um, intelligence. And so he created, I keep saying he, she created. <laughs> um, See how it's, that's one. how it is, though. See, that's how it is. It's in our language. It's in everything. We don't even realize it. It's so, so like, uh, like a snake, you know. It, it's just so ingrained. And so ingrained yeah. in and you know what? Yes. I have to say it's really interesting because I very rarely um, use he as the universal when I'm speaking English. I've kind of reprogrammed my mind. But it's mm-hmm. so interesting to me that because we're now speaking about the Yoruba um, mythology, which is not something I've spoken about as much, my whole sort of upbringing to think of God as he is coming back. Um, mm, so that's quite fascinating. But yes, um, so, so Ogbonino and Ogbonori are basically um, emotional intelligence and intellectual intelligence. And the whole concept here is that um, we need to have both. In order to become wise, um, you need both of these elements. And not just individually, but collectively also um, in our societies. We need to... Um, you know, we, we need to foster emotional intelligence as much as we do uh, focus on the kind of intellectual and reason and rational analyses. In your book, you talk about um, the Kenyan novelist, um, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Nguji Wa Thiongo. Is that, is that correct? I think it's Ungugi Wationgo, but I'm also not Kenyan, so okay. that's to be corrected. <laughs> okay, so, so in the book yeah. you talk about, um, you know, his phrase that the bullet was the means of physical subjugation, um, but really language is the root cause of mental colonization. And you talk about language when you were talking about your friend and you were trying to um, ask about his name, his African name in the, in the book. But he always uses, I guess, if you want to say English name. Talk to the audience about why that is so important, that usage of different names and language and how that affects colonization. Well, what I was really interested in in my chapter about decolonization is, um, you know, on the one hand, the importance of language, which, you know, my entire book, Sensuous Knowledge, is very much engaging with language and, and what I believe language has the power to 
to transform society. In fact, it is the most powerful tool that we have, uh, language and narrative and so on. Um, and so on the one hand, it is of central importance that we continue to question um, you know, colonial languages, whether it's English or Spanish or Portuguese or Arabic or whatever, and what kind of, um, what, what stories and what myths and what kind of worldviews these languages bring with them. Um, and this is what Ngogi Wationgo um, very much centered his book, Decolonizing the Mind, around. Um, and he was arguing that we should move toward or move back to, to centering indigenous African languages. Um, which I agree is something that, you know, we need to, we need to definitely not only cherish and celebrate indigenous languages, but, but yeah, bring them into like our politics and our educational systems and so on. At the same time, um, what that chapter is, is doing is also um, suggesting that language is, is perhaps more malleable than Tiongo's book did. Um, so even using... Um, you know, like we can use the English language or, or other colonial languages in more creative and playful ways and, and use languages to reimagine and create egalitarian um, and elevated societies. And so, and, and the reason that, I, that I'm going there with my argument is because we have to. Um, you know, there have been attempts to bring in more usage of indigenous languages in the African continent, for instance. But this is, you know, we're going on 50 years now and it hasn't really solidified. In fact, um, the use of English, French, Portuguese, and so on has only been cemented further, largely due to globalization. And so I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, the, the whole thinking behind sensuous knowledge is always um, this kind of synthesis that I mentioned briefly earlier in terms of like, connecting the mind and the body and all of that. Um, and so, you know, how do we, how do we um, stay grounded in reality um, mm -hmm. and bring practical efforts and solutions to how we can transform the mess that we're in into something progressive, um, <laughs> but yet not do it, yet not do it with this kind of robotic systemic oppressive language um, and so, well, well, well one of the things you talk about is, 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 is not maybe, um, I think you talk about Audrey Lord um, and the master's tools, I think it is you were talking about, um, and, yeah. and using the master's tools to break down, you know, the, the, what is happening. But you go to a next step, because I think uh, in your, your, your writing about why you wrote the book, you say, um, this is not a protest book. But how is this not a protest book? Because you're protesting a lot of stuff. Explain to the audience how this is not a protest. You're like, don't do this, don't do that. We should do this, we should do that. Talk to me about why is it not a protest book? <laughs> um, I think the difference is very subtle, and I mentioned that in the book as well. So I say that it is a progress book rather than a protest book. Um, but because progress means, um, you know, to 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 continue on on a journey that has started for one it also means to to raise consciousness higher um, and in order to do those things there is obviously then an element of protest that comes along because whenever you're trying to um, create something new you are rejecting what is what has been before um, and in fact you know in some sense you could say that offering a, a 
new paradigmatic approach to, to knowledge production is in some ways the highest form of protest because it's saying that like you want to um, you want to fundamentally uproot what we know the way that yeah. we know um, and how we apply what we know so so it's a really subtle thing but it's it's it informed the way that I wrote the book so the book was more um, the, the the ideas in it and the writing of it is more rooted in wanting to imagine something new rather than to critique the old um, but you, you Let me see here. I think we have a question. I think there's a person. You're calling the last four digits are four seven five six. Do you have a question for Mina? Um, yes. Hello. Good morning. Yes. Yes. Yes, ladies. I'm calling from New Orleans. Uh, my name is Warren. I also have a show here on Blog Talk Radio. And my question for uh, the guest uh, in the movie The Wedding Party, there was a scene. You saw that, right, Miss Mina? The Wedding Party. Um, I, I'm so bad at remembering movie names. I'm not sure if I have. Uh, okay, it's one, it's one. It's one of the Nolly. It, it was. It was one of the Nollywood movies that uh, grossed among the largest grosses, grossing. And there was a scene where they had this caterer at the wedding, and one caterer served, uh, you know, traditional European American food, but another caterer was a you know Yoruba lady who served the Yoruba food, and everybody loved her food. And I just loved the, the role she played. She was a strong woman, an entrepreneur, and I imagined her to be the type of women that many African Americans come from during enslavement who were brought over here. And so I just wanted to ask you about that character, if you remember, and the role that women are depicted in Nollywood movies. There. Well, thank you. What's your name, sir? Warren What's from New Orleans. Warren. 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 Okay, thank Warren. You so much, Warren. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Let's, let's see what she got to say. <laughs> Thanks so much, Warren. I actually now I know which movie it is, and I haven't seen it, but I, I've I've heard so much about it, so I feel like I've seen it almost. Um, and and I think I can glean what this scene um, is about. It's a it's a beautiful way to to tie in these conversations, um, because again, yeah. Um, we live in a world that is now so globalized and in which, you know, even in Nigeria, people are having weddings that are westernized, as you would have seen in that movie. In fact, the whole way that the movie is produced is really quite American, like a lot of Nollywood films are. Um, but then at the same time, we still have all of these um, historical and traditional foods and customs and practices, even our weddings in, in Yoruba land. Um, like we have two. When people will get married, they do the traditional wedding and then they do the, the white wedding, they call it, which is the Western <laughs> variant. <laughs> you know, because the bride wears the white dress and stuff. And I think that that is actually, um, is, a, is a bit of a, a seed um, to sensuous knowledge because this is the kind of thinking um, that I think we urgently have to focus on. We need to synthesize, basically. So if there's one thing that my book is arguing for, it is for synthesis of, of um, you know, of emotional intelligence and and, reason, and rational thinking of Western practices, whatever might be useful for us in this day and age, with um, African traditions and indigenous traditions from everywhere. Um, also learning from the natural world of how to communicate with each other. And so, this idea that, like you know, at a wedding you could have both the traditional food and the Western food. Um, or maybe even like a, a hybrid of the two, um, that's actually really, really powerful, I think. Um, and, you know, going back to earlier, we were talking about um, 
decolonization in Ngugi Wationgo's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that I argued in my book is, you know, I had this, this, this friend that I was calling um, by his Western name, let's say it was Antonio, um, instead of his, his Ghanaian name, Kwabena. Um, but why is it that, you know, the African continent cannot um, sort of like claim anything that is Western. So in Sweden, you have the name Anton. In, in Mexico, you also have Antonio. And nobody says that, oh, these, this isn't an authentic Mexican name. But in, mm-hmm. in the African continent, we, we keep doing that. And I think in some sense, we also need to claim what is what Western practices that we've been, we've been using now for centuries, you know. Um, you know, sort of Mina, let, Mina, let me just interrupt you, because also in your book, you talk about, about blackness and that Africans are unable to embrace blackness. Um, tell us a little bit about the Uni. He is a high um, priest. Um, talk to the audience about that experience and how when he spoke to the African-Americans versus when he spoke to the, the, the white Europeans, that, that little story there. Yeah, um, so the Uni of Ife is the highest um, embodiment of the divine in, in Yoruba culture. Um, and the, the current Oni is, he is the, the leader of Yoruba people all around the world. So we're talking about, you know, millions of people. Um, and I was fortunate to, to visit and himself and interview him. Um, and while I was there, um, you know, so many, diff- I had so many incredible and insightful experiences, both good and bad. Um, bad in the sense of that it was, um, it's, it's, a, it's a culture that is so steeped in, in tradition that I think that can become problematic if we can't um, sort of loosen our ties to tradition. But anyway, what was extremely beautiful was um, the Oni gave a speech one of the days that I was there, he gave a speech to a bunch of white American men that had come from the American embassy um, and they wanted to build some kind of memorial um, in Ife. And, um, and he welcomed them to Ife. He said, welcome home. Um, and he, he, they kind of, they blushed because they're white and they come from America. So they know that there's these tensions. Um, but he then explained that, look, you know, this is the cradle of humanity. Um, he said Africa, and even more specifically Ife, because this is our belief in Yoruba land, is that Ife is the cradle of humanity. Um, and so you come from here, even though you have now dispersed. And, and it was a really beautiful and very humanist speech, um, which, you know, you could analyze. And, and, and I, I took issue with knowing that people like that are often coming to exploit um, and so it's kind of this double-edged sword of, on the one hand, um, very typically culture, the Oni was showing this almost as a bit of a, uh, an arrogance and a pride and like, this is where humanity started. But at the same time, it's almost being too kind to people who don't always have our best intentions at heart. But in any mm-hmm. case, um, later that day, a bunch of uh, musicians and artists and creatives from um, from the diaspora, so black people, predominantly black Americans, um, but also Caribbeans and, and Latin Americans, um, we all convened, and the Oni of Ife gave the same speech, pretty much, um, to this group of people. And it was, it, it was just something about the energy and the way that this speech resounded 
when it was a room full of black people from around the globe. And this, this sentiment of when he said, welcome home, um, you know, that really pierced my heart and my mind and everything because we were so connected. And that, that moment for me was what I, was, what I think blackness is, that, that sense that we, you know, we weren't necessarily connected by blood in any kind of direct way, but we were mm-hmm. all, all of us in that room were connected by uh, the, the trajectory of our social history, of like the journeys that we've been on, the journeys that, that our ancestors were on, the, the kind of philosophical and spiritual beliefs that inform our lineage, even if we don't follow them strictly, you know. Um, but everybody kind of knew exactly what was meant by that statement, welcome home. And mm-hmm. nobody blushed. You know, <laughs> like earlier in the day. Unlike the other, other people. Now, you talk yeah. about in the story about womanhood, and you also talk about the waves of feminism. First, let's talk about the womanhood. You talk about the color blue. When I think of the color blue now, I think of boy. I think of man. Because even, as you say in your book, I mean, as soon as a woman is born, it's just, that's it. That her, her life is defined. And the color pink comes in because you go to people's rooms, uh, for the baby, it's pink or it's blue, or they, now they use green or yellow or something like that if they don't know. Talk to them about the goddess, I think it's Asi. Asi, is that what I'm saying correctly? Yes, uh, yes. the goddess Asi. Um, yeah, um, so in my book, I, I have a chapter that, about womanhood that starts with the sentence that blue is a feminine color in Africa. And, and here's a perfect example, actually, between progress and protest, because what this, this chapter is doing is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm showing how something that we take for granted that is part of this Europatriarchal knowledge and worldview that has shaped all of our lives and, and that has coded particular behaviors. So blue is for boys because boys are uh, powerful, dominant, this, that, and pink is for girls because we're actually, when you look at a different continent and a different people's history and stories, um, you know, we're talking millions of people in a, an area of geography that's so much larger than Europe. Um, it's, it's blue is actually a feminine color. And so then I go on to, um, to kind of merge history with my own personal experiences and feminist theory and using blue as a catalyst um, of a way to reimagine what womanhood can mean, and ultimately, in, in, a, in a way that signifies uh, a sense of personhood and self-reliance that, that this categorization of blue and pink in the West um, has deprived women of. Um, and so, you know, there's a sense here that obviously I'm protesting against the ways that I myself had to experience these, these limiting and oppressive categorizations. But, but more than that, um, I'm interested in, um, like, just bringing in that color blue in a way that that um, affects the reader not only socially and politically, but also psychologically and almost spiritually in a sense. So that whenever you ne- you know are, are given some kind of easy code about uh, you know blue and pink or whatever, you will just think twice. If nothing else, you will just think yeah. twice. That is it really this rigid? Um, yeah. So now oh, we have another caller. Let's see if they have a question. You're calling from 215-266. The number is, do you have a, a question for the guest, Nina? 
Hello? Okay, maybe they just want to listen. Yeah. That's okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. No um, let's talk about these waves of feminism. In your in your book, you you talking about there's almost four or five waves of feminism. Can you tell the audience what what these are? Uh, four or five waves of feminism. I'm not quite sure. Well, okay. You first start off with the first wave of feminism is in the 19th century, um, and it was a oh, wave. Okay, wave. sorry, I I'm sorry. Wave. Oh, waves. Um, <laughs> waves like ocean waves. Sorry. <laughs> now I've got it. Yeah, no, I should have Okay, okay. Um, yeah, well, yes. Um, there's a tendency to categorize the feminist movement in waves. Um, they aren't, like, it's not a neat process. But you have the first wave of feminism in the late 20th century when um it was about such um, first and foremost, um, and it's kind of the, the it's connected also to um, the abolition movement. Um, and then you have the second wave of feminism, which is um, the during the 60s and 70s. Um, you know when you had the invention of the birth control pill and the whole. Um, uh, well, there's been the Second World War and women had come out of that in the West, especially, um, and starting work and whatnot. And then the third wave, um, which starts around the 90s um, and has to do um, with uh, uh, race and gender and class um, largely impacting and then also the creation of, of gender studies and women's studies in universities. Um, and what I argue... Um, in the book, which um, which is is not really an argument, is a, a fact, is that all of these waves um, of feminism are uh, were deeply create, influenced and even you could say created by black women. Um, you know, so obviously the, uh, the the abolition abolition was something uh, where both black women and men. Um, so people like Frederick Douglass and um, Sojourner Truth were the key shapers. But now Sojourner Truth didn't have the platform that either uh, a black man, but even more importantly, that white women could have. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of her ideas were, were propagated by the, the white feminists in this first wave. In the second wave, the feminist movement was directly uh, created because you had uh, women who were working with civil rights organizations. So quite similar to what we have today with Black Lives Matter, there was that sentiment going on. And, but a lot of these women who got involved in the civil rights got angry because they realized that they were having to take a back seat within these movements because of their gender. Um, with the third wave, uh, you have, I mean, it was, first of all, it was coined by Alice Walker's daughter, Rebecca Walker. Um, so a black woman, and you know, it's, it's very much shaped, as I said, by questions of, of race and class, um, which is something that, that black women and other women of color contributed to the movement. And also you could argue that what we have now is the um, fourth wave of feminism, which is um, very much shaped by social media, um, you know, Me Too and um, all of the, the feminist blogs and so on that have emerged in the past decade or two. And again, um, you know, what are the what are the, the the leading 
energies of this movement. It's terminologies like intersectionality created by a black feminist. Um, some of yeah, our it, that's feminists. the thing that's interesting, you know, because people didn't yeah. know that at first. You know, they did not know that yeah. it was a black woman who had, had, you know, was the catalyst for the Me Too situation. Let's let's bring that to the what's been happening now. I don't know if you're familiar a lot with what's happening now in America and the George Floyd and how that was a catalyst for a lot of the protests that are going on in America. Of course, but, yes. Um, but they are not aware and not really promoting what has happened to women. How was exactly. that? How was that over in um, in London? Does that happen there too? Um, are men more held up as um, the catalyst for maybe a great movement, and yet the same things are happening to black women in London? Uh, is that going on over there as well? That is going on um, over here, and has been going on for so long. Um, you know, the 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 narrative and the stories about the black emancipation movement in the UK and in all of Europe um, centered on black men's contributions and antagonisms toward white supremacy. And the same, of course, applies um, very widely to the African continent. And, you know, this is a, this is a real problem that is so underplayed um, and undermined within the black struggle. Um, and it has to do with the the real lack of agency and dehumanization of women um, that we are yet to grapple with in black communities on a on a full scale um, and and I think what we end up doing quite often is like importing and adopting the the narrative of gender struggle that uh, you know that is western and that exists in in white communities and a lot of that informs the black struggle too but but we also have to really look at the specifics of of what has happened between um, black women and men. You know, if white people didn't exist, um, and if we just looked at our own history and our own our own trajectories of gender relations, um, what is really going on? Like, this is a question that we need to engage with at depth. And, and one of the central things that happens, I think, when we look at it this way, is you know we can see that black men because they face um, so many attacks toward uh, this idea of masculinity um, that, that, that uh, informs black manhood, uh, very generally aggression is taken out on black women. And that is not only taken out by means of, of violence, which also happens in disturbing amounts, but also um, and precisely in erasure um, and diminishing and making it, it makes our contribution to knowledge production and to society invisible. Um, and this you is talk a, about this knowledge. Let's struggle. just stick on that one more the knowledge there, right there. We only have a couple minutes. I know I have to let you go. But the, the issue of that um, knowledge is uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, God, what, did, what did you say? It's basically it's like equal, but it's really not. It's your patriarchal um, that that that. We think um, the not the things that we're learning are, I guess, like the truth, and but the way we're viewed and the way they're taught, they're not the truth. Could you expound on that? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> I think I do. I think I do. Um, so, what what I really want to leave listeners with um, uh, is that, and especially Black women, is that what we know, the ways, the way our experiences 
how we've been raised, what we've been taught about ourselves, and what we actually do, and how we relate with each other, and the kinds of things that we invent, and the, the theories that we create. All of these things are central to not only what we might call black thought, but to global thought. And, and we have the human right to make those ideas visible and to, to claim them and position them as vital ingredients in, in the whole sort of fabric of knowledge production. Um, and and that, is some, that is a right that has been taken away from us by all other groups in society. And it is high time that we start to claim that right and position our knowledge as central, first and foremost, in our own lives rather than other groups' knowledge, but also um, to the whole pool of knowledge as a whole. Okay, some fun questions here. We, we, we talked about a lot of deep stuff here. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. What's your favorite uh, author, other than yourself, of course? <laughs> I'm not even my favorite author. Writing is such a hard process. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, you can't make me choose. But okay, okay, how about three? Give those. me three. Give three. me three. Thank you. Okay. 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 Um, so then I'm going to go with Bell Hooks, um, Toni Morrison, and um, Sophie Bosede Oluwole, a Nigerian philosopher. Okay, how about music? Top three musicians you like? Oh, um, okay. Well, um, I love Sade and um, oh, I'm just gonna give you a genre. <laughs> I really <laughs> love um, soul music. I can't pick. There's just so many, many people. But I, I do like um, I like a lot of the, the modern soul music. But I guess you know, in terms of favorite people like Sade, Tracy Chapman. Um, mm-hmm. Bob Marley and Diary, Lauren Hill. I'm gonna go. Yeah, with you Lauren talk Hill. about Lauren, Lauren in your book. Yeah, 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 yeah. yes. She's, okay, she's definitely a favorite. When you leave the house, what do you have to have in your pocketbook? Like, you, like you've got to have this thing in your pocketbook. Like, oh, you can't go out the house. Um, at the moment, is uh, like hand sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but normally, I mean, you know, my phone. But um, lipstick. I I I have a thing about um, like even when I when I write, um, you know, I, if I know that I'm going to be at home all day by myself, I'm not going to see a single person. Um, but I put on lipstick. It kind of brings. I feel like it brings in a feminine touch to my to my work and to my day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's a good note to end. Thank you so much for taking time today to do the interview uh, all the way across the ocean. Um, I want to thank the audience for listening. Uh, please uh, listen. Follow her. She has missed on the web. Um, she's on Twitter. She's on Instagram. Check her out. Um, on all those places. Um, And what do you have coming up next? Um, Are you working on any big projects other than the book? What's coming up next Um, for you? Yeah, um, so I'm I'm writing a series um, for a think tank called um, Perspectiva. And it's um, it's a series of essays about exusions, which is a concept I coined in my book. It's an alternative way to look at power. Um, And so I'm building on that in this series of essays. And if anybody's interested in them, um, you can you can check my Instagram page where I've got some posts about it. Um, it's very much about connecting 
black feminism, with spirituality, and with nature. So um, themes that I think are really important today in our time. Lena, guess what? I didn't know that you knew Suleiman Adonia. He was just on the show earlier. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's pretty good. I was reading your nice. book, and I said he talked about he thanked you because you helped him with meditation. Let's, how did, just real quick, how, did, how has meditation helped you in your life, just the clarity? How has it helped you? Oh, uh, meditation is, like, you know, if you ask me what I would put in my bag um, whenever I leave my house, <laughs> um, meditation is, like, what I what I put in my, you know, what I need, what I need to, to get by with each day, what I need to create ideas, what I need to learn, to grow, to have good relationships. Um, it's something that I see as both, uh, you know, kind of self-development on an individual level, but I also meditate so that I can be of better service. Um, and I think that people, anyone who, who wants to be of service to humanity and to their communities, um, should be meditating because it just it just helps us to center ourselves and, and to speak from a place of compassion and, and wisdom. Um, so meditation is really, really important. Yeah. I agree. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. I'm going to release you, um, and you can go meditate or write some more <laughs> or put some lipstick on. Thank you. Or all thank three. you. Thank you. <laughs> Huge thanks to you, three. Joy. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> thanks okay, for I'm going to be giving some copies time. of your book away, um, so I just want to let oh. the audience know. And um, so stay tuned on the social media for, for the giveaway um, opportunity. Thank you so much, Mina, for coming on today. Thanks. Thank you, Joy. Okay. okay I'll talk day. to you later. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Okay, everybody, you can follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Also on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You want to follow, if you want to get a copy of Nina's book or Suleiman's book, you definitely want to follow so you can find out how you can win. Most of the times I tell people, email me the answer of the quiz. You might be the winner. You never know. So check them out. Also check her out, Miss Afropolitan. She has a website, like she was saying, talk about her writing. And um, Suleiman, he's on Twitter. You can check him out. Check him out there. I have a great day. Remember, we're still in this COVID madness. Cover your face, your nose, your mouth. If you got gloves, um, make sure you wash your hands frequently. Um, but besides all that, I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 